blesses us fast. Do you have your Bible? I hope that you do. Take it and turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Woohoo! We made it to the second chapter. So here we come to the second chapter of this beautiful little letter. For those of you who are new to us in just a moment, we're going to do a little bit of a review, but you need your outline there. Take a pen as well. And as we run to the Word of God, we ask God to come and to speak to us, to help us to learn of Him, and to gain what He has for us this morning. I'd like to pray before we um, come to this passage and before we come to this message. Um, I feel a special burden for us that we would hear this message carefully because this is indeed one of the key focuses of the book of 1 John. And it is an issue, it was an issue in the first century, and it is an issue in the 21st century. So let's pray together and ask God to speak to us. Holy Father, we need your words. Lord, we need what you have said to now speak to us. Father, we ask that you would come and that you would cause these words to be truly quickening to our spirit, that they would cut where they need to cut to us, and that your Holy Spirit would be using them, that we might see what you want us to see, not only about the world around us, but also about our own hearts. And I pray that you would do a great work as we look at these simple and beautiful words from 1 John. Holy Spirit, I've asked that you would come and do what I cannot do as a preacher. Father, I pray that you would come and convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would either affirm us or reveal, Lord, our need for you. In the wonderful name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. Amen. If you have your sermon outline, notice there, we come to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And before we read the text in the box on the page, I want us to look at the review for just a moment. And I'm going to kind of ask you to re really remember some things here in just a moment. This morning, we come to the author is, what, excuse me, he is uh, a disciple and an apostle. That, an apostle, that is who John is. A disciple in that he was with Jesus following Jesus closely. He was part of the inner core, but he's also an apostle, which is one who is sent out, and he's sent out by Christ for the rest of his life. Look at the next part here, the genre. It's an open letter to all churches, and the writing style is very important. We've talked about how much meaning this brings to us to realize that John is very artistic in the way he unfolds the story, much more artistic than any of the other New Testament writers. He is repeating and interwoven and layering, and we also said progressively revealing what he wants us to see. This is the Holy Spirit working through John's mind, working through his personality, working through all of these things to reveal his eternal words through him. And this is a beautiful letter in that way. Notice the next part, the setting. The critical transition is at the end of the eyewitnesses. This is at the late end of the first century. So Jesus would have ascended to the Father and then 60 years have gone by. Churches springing up all across the Mediterranean world. And as, gospel, as the gospel goes out through missionaries, through people like uh, Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles, including John, so 60 years have gone by and all of them have been put to death except for John. So he's really the last of the eyewitnesses who is an apostle that's writing. Well, he's dealing with doctrinal problems. Doctrinal problems. As always, what kind of teachers were rising up? False teachers were rising up. Distorting the gospel. Saying things that were not true. Seeking to lead churches away from the true gospel. And that is the, as plain then as it is today. Notice the next one. So because of these false teachers, new heresies were circulating around. 
Was Jesus really in the flesh? Was Jesus really um, God in the flesh? He wasn't God. He was, he was a, an apparition of God to some degree. He, or, or perhaps people are not really sinful. What they do in the flesh is not really that bad. It's, it's the, the spirit that matters. So these issues of heresies that are coming along and that we see John dealing with them. Well, these doctrinal problems also um, give way to behavioral problems. And this is the one that I want to test you on a little bit. Um, what have we said so far? That the people were being tempted, they were tempted to love the world instead of loving what? Very good. Instead of loving God, instead of loving others. They were tempted to be in love with the things of the world, in love with the flesh, in love with the, the wealth of the world, or in love with status, in love with power, in love with maybe erotica. I mean, you name it. In love with all of these things that play on our senses. And that was true even in the church. And, and there were some that were coming along saying, oh, that's okay, because what you do in the flesh doesn't really matter as long as your spirit is right. And what we see is that some were saying, well, what is sin? Is there really sin? I mean, I, I don't have sin. Or I stopped sinning. I no longer sin. I mean, there were all kinds of false doctrines because they loved the world that were coming into their beliefs, seeking to rationalize um, those things. You see, in verse 5, we said, is perhaps the central premise for the entire letter, and it's right here. I've left it on uh, this bullet point. Verse 5 is the central premise. Look what it says, and let's read it out loud together where it says this is the message. Let's read that out loud together. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now there's many who believe, and I agree, that this is, this is the key thrust that John wants us to see. He wants us to see that the message has always been that God is pure. God is holy. God is right. There is no injustice in God. God is perfectly just in all of his ways. And while the world has darkness, God has no darkness at all. And that's the way it's constructed in the Greek. It's very careful. It's not just saying that he has no darkness, but it's saying he has no darkness at all. And that's very, very key. Because we've said, if you want to kind of learn of it, you know, the world is all into know yourself, come to know yourself, who are you really, who are you supposed to, whatever it may be. We, we often think about those things very often. But if you really want to know yourself, you need to begin by coming to know God. Because he made you. And he has set out a plan for you. He has a glorious nature for you. And so we see that this is a key premise in the whole thing, that God is light and in him is no darkness. That would be one of the great beginnings. So fill this in so far, where we've been over the last six, five messages. So far, the Apostle John wants us to know, number one, the reality and centrality of Christ. He wants us to know that Jesus was real. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't, he wasn't something that was a figment of anyone's imagination. John is saying, I saw him. I held him. I was with him. And he is at the beginning of everything. That was John. That's how the first four verses open. It deals with the centrality and the reality of Christ. Notice the next one. In verses 1 through 5, what we just talked about, he wants us to see the perfect nature of God. We need to know who God really is. We need to know that he is perfect in all of his ways, that he is light, and that in him is no darkness whatsoever. You remember this when we, when we divided out the scripture like this and we said verse 5 is at the top there? Go ahead to the next slide, guys. Look at verse 5. That was the central premise verse for what we've just been studying. So this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness. And then the rest of those thoughts are subservient to that and indeed perhaps the whole letter. Notice the next one here. Not only is the perfect nature of God what he wants us to know, but he wants us to realize the sinful nature of humanity. The sinful nature of humanity. You see, he's making this very clear. And in verses 6, 
8 and 10. Do you remember this? We divided it out. Verses 6, 8, and 10 are talking about if we say. You remember there's all these if we say statements. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Look at verse 8, the middle one. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so what he's saying to us is, friends, you need to recognize in the first century and in the 21st century that we have a sin, a, a sinful nature that is down deep within our hearts. But then there's this beautiful one here. He also wants us to see the forgiven nature of those who are in Christ. And we see this throughout the rest of the letter as well, but notice on the, excuse me, notice on the screen how we broke those two out. Look what it says in verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, it's forgiven. And then look at 1 John 1, 9. Do you all remember this? Many of you have memorized this from childhood. Let's read it out loud if you can see it on the screen there. In verse 9, that's the second arrow there. Let's read it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the most glorious passages in the New Testament. That here we see there's a perfect God, there's a sinful humanity, but there's forgiveness that he brings to us in Christ. Now we go to chapter 2, and so you see those asterisks across there, everything below this is new, and so let's go up to the top of the page in the box, and let's read this new passage that will be the basis for the next couple of messages. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is what? is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, this morning we're going to look at the first half of the first verse. And I want you to see it again. It's up there at the top. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. What in the world is he talking about? Well, let's look and let's see. Number one, fill this in. Notice the Apostle John's gentle, pastoral heart toward followers of Jesus. You can get rid of that extra of there. That that, that doesn't need to be there after the word heart. But notice what it says. Notice the Apostle John's gentle pastoral heart toward followers of Jesus. Now from the beginning, when we were talking about the Gospel of John, we were saying that in some parts of his letter, he is very gentle and pastoral. In other parts of his letter, we used another word. It starts with a P. What, what was it? Do you remember? It, he's, he's not gentle and pastoral, but he's what? Very good. Polemical. He, 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 he's, he's writing a polemic. He's writing an attack upon false thinking. He's writing an attack upon false living. And so he's, he's wanting to encourage in one way, but he's wanting to correct in another way and refute in another way and that's part of the beauty of of this very powerful apostles message Um, at this point in his life remember with me that he's the oldest he's probably in his 80s or in his 90s at this point and he's been a church leader for over 60 years 
And so he's, he's been at this for a long time. And he sees well what is happening in the churches in what would be modern-day Turkey. And he's concerned about the trends that he sees. And so God uses him to write this. So he uses this term, my little children. Now, notice this. Um, he uses this term six times in the letter. So over and over again, he calls them my little children. And he went, notice this, he went from being the youngest disciple to being the oldest apostle. So when there were 12 disciples, John was the youngest. He, he was the one that was maybe even in his late teens, maybe even a teenager, as he started out following Christ. Part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. John was one of the youngest, and he was on the inside. But now we come, 60 years later, and he's kind of the last man standing. He's the last one, and um, his message is very important to them. Notice the next part here. He is perhaps reminding them of their need to grow. When he's saying to them, my little children, he's not doing it really in a derogatory way. He's not really doing it in a condescending way. He's doing it in a pastoral way, a loving way. And I kind of believe that there's a hint inside of him where he is saying, I want you to realize that you are, have plenty of room for growth, that you need to grow. Notice this as well. The key message that we have here this morning out of this passage, notice up there in verse 1, let's go back up to the box on the page in verse 1, he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I believe that there's a lot of Christians that engage in smorgasbord Christianity. Have you ever been to a smorgasbord, a big buffet? And there's all these things in the buffet. Are there sometimes things at that big buffet that you really like? Yeah, that's the reason they do it. Different people have different tastes. Are there some things in that big buffet that you don't like? Yeah. Do you like turnip greens? I actually like turnip greens, but I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't. I mean, I, was, I, I could avoid that one. Lima beans. Mm. I, I, don't, I don't always like the texture of lima beans. You know, I don't know. Marcy makes me eat them. Um, <laughs> But I mean, you know, we, we kind of come along and we pick and choose the things that we like. And I, I'm concerned that in modern day Christianity, that cultural Christianity upon churches has sometimes caused us to look at different, whether it's theologies or whether it's just emphases, different emphases that we like or that we don't like. I mean, for instance, we love to talk about grace and we should, we should love to talk about grace. It is the lifeline that that, how, that opens heaven for us. But do we also pay attention to the holiness of God? Do we also consider the passages in his word where he calls us to live like him? Do we, do we focus on the issue of our sin as much as the Bible focuses on the issue of our sin? Or do we like to hang out with grace? You see, there's, he, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. My, my Savior loves me so that he will hold me fast. Security in Christ is a wonderful thing. And our hearts need to celebrate that. But let me tell you that if all that we do is celebrate the things that sound good and look good and smell good and taste good to us without looking at the great message of God's full word, then we be, can become very, very unhealthy. And I want us to see this morning that our sin is a big deal to God. Sin is a big deal to God. And it's, and, and it's not just the sin of lost people that's a big deal to God. It's the sin of saved people that is a big deal to God. 
And we need, to, we need to see that this affects our fellowship with God. And this affects our fellowship with each other. And that's what John is harping on. That's what he covers over and over again. He's coming back at us at angle after angle, helping us deeply consider our own lives and what we say versus what we do. And he's challenging us to make sure that those match. Because the consequences of them not matching are very great. He says they don't know God, they're not of God, they're liars. I mean, that's, that's pretty strong language. And so we would do well this morning, you would do well this morning, to be careful to see what John is getting at. And that's why I've entitled this, Shall We Continue in Sin? John is saying no. Now that's a a statement from Paul in Romans 6 that we'll see, but we want to see that it's coming out of this. In verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Number two, I want you to see this. True Christians do not walk in sin, but in Christ's victory over sin. And I've, I've I've written this particularly and carefully, struggled with this, and exactly what the Lord wanted me to to say about this, and I, I believe that this is exactly what the Lord wants me to say. Look at number two. True Christians do not walk in sin, but in Christ's victory over sin. You see, it might be tempting for you to say, in your victory over sin, but that's not how you have victory over sin. The only hope For you to have victory over the sin in your life is to have Christ's victory in your life. Now what the reason so many people either give up on the Christian life or give up on their battle in sin is because no one has carefully helped unfold this picture of just, number one, what a big deal our sin is to God, but number two, what a big deal is that he has done and how he's done for you to have victory and for you to live a life that is honoring to him, a life that is holy. There's much to be said. We're going to look at several passages right here, Um, and this is the preponderance of the message. Look at Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Romans 6, 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. That's your body that's going to pass away. That's, that's, That's your body. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin. That's your arms, your legs, your hands, your eyes, your ears. The members of your body. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought, brought from death to life. He's saying, You've been brought from death into life in Christ. So present your body to live in that way. Notice this. And your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Can you say amen? Amen. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. Fill that in. That's what the scripture says. You're not under the law. Don't flip the page yet. You're not under the law. You're under grace. The great gift of grace, the great washing of grace is what has been applied to your account, to your identity before God. That when God looks at you, it's through his grace that he looks at you and doesn't annihilate you. Instead, he forgives you and he forgives you perfectly and cleanly. And so he's saying that while you're still in this life, while you're still in this mortal body, and it does have passions that it wants to go for, he's saying, don't present yourself to those things. You're under grace. So by faith, live in that grace in what God has done. Well, let's unpack it a little bit further. Flip the page. 
And I've reduced it down to just that one verse up there, our main verse. Look at verse 1 up there. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And number two, still number two, do you remember what goes in the blank? What goes in the blank? What did we say? True Christians do not walk in sin, but in Christ's victory over sin. This is the continuation of the same point. These passages are very important. And I, it, it has been my prayer that God would use these passages to help you see that God doesn't want you to continue in sin. Instead, he's gone to elaborate measure and he's explained very, very well that you as a Christian have the power and the victory to not be in bondage to sin. Because some people in their mind, they think, Oh, there's no way for me to overcome this. It's too strong. I've tried before, and I tried again, and I've tried a thousand times. And we all have all of these different rationales for why maybe we give in to whatever the sins may be, whether it's a thought problem or whether it's an action problem or whether it's a mentality or maybe it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's an emotional response to something and, and you know, it's just maybe it's anger or maybe it's lack of forgiveness or maybe it's lust, maybe, it, you know, whatever it may be, you know, some of my Latino friends in the past, they would say, pastor, I'm a Latino, of course, I'm, you know, I mean, it just, this is my libido, man, this is the way I am, this is the way all of us are, you know, we, we'll come up with all kinds of things that we, that we can, that we can claim, give us some rationale for why we just can't overcome this, but I, I want you to see this so clearly, Romans 6, 1 is where we get the title of this message. Look what it says in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2. Let's read it out loud together. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, the great picture of our spiritual life is exalted over our physical life in this earth. What he's saying is, look at spiritually what has happened to you in Christ. When Christ came and he saved you, he's come and he's lifted you and exalted you to a position of his beloved son. He's moved you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's changed you. Stop looking at the physical world around you, you are one who believes in God. And you are one who believes in the spiritual nature of God. And he's saying, you've died to that sin with Christ, and now you're alive. So should we just continue in sin? You know, there's some people that look at this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Here, here's what they kind of think. Well, I'm a sinner, and he's a savior. I... I love to sin, and he loves to forgive. So we got a good deal. I mean, that's kind of what this is, this is asking. Is that okay? And what we would see there in verse 2 is an extremely powerful negative response. May it never be is literally what is there as we see it. By no means. It's a very strong negative. When you study the way these two words are put together in other areas of the Greek language, you start to see that it's an extremely strong no. So we're not to continue in sin that grace may abound. In fact, we see in other places where if that's your mentality, how can you say that you really even know God because you've missed his point? Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 17. Look what it says in Romans 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, look what it says, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is the way that you say, that's not a rock band from the 70s. Uh, the, the Abba, Father, that is, listen, that is the picture of daddy, my daddy. 
This is, this is the intimacy that God has invited us into. He's not called us to live in fear. The world, Satan wants you to live in fear. And the more you sin, the more fear you're going to have. But when we, when we come to see here, here we're called to live into, yes, a respectful reverence of God that allows us to go to the place beyond that to a great intimacy with God where we, we are called his children and he is called our father. We don't live any longer according to the flesh, but we live according to the spirit. Look at verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God. That means inheritors. We inherit from God. We heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. By the way, just put a note out there in the open space underneath that, maybe to the right. Suffer now, glory later. Suffer now, glory later. That is the picture in the message of the New Testament when it comes to the issues of our lives and eternity that is to come. Suffer now, glory later. Now we have to mortify the flesh. That means we have to put to death our our passions, we have to put to death, we have to resist, we have to fight, we have to, we have to do everything that we can in this thing of our intimacy and our walking with God, our fellowship with God. We suffer now. And in fact, even when you're seeking to do everything right, there's going to come times when people are going to look at you and say, you're wrong. In everything that you believe is right, you're wrong. In fact, we were looking at that this last Wednesday night in Isaiah chapter 5. That that which is evil is going to be exalted as good, and that which is good is going to be called evil. So there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a resistance to the things of God. And so it's it's a suffer now, but listen, it's okay. We've read the end of the book. There's glory to come. There's healing to come. There's wholeness to come. And so this is part of the picture that we see in God's grand plan. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, training us, training us. That's a word that involves discipline. Training isn't easy. Training requires practice. It requires effort. Training us to what? Renounce ungodliness. That means to reject it and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That means in a sinful world, waiting on the Savior. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's so, so beautiful. That's what we're doing We're suffering now, waiting on the Savior. We're suffering now, waiting on the glory to come. In verse 14, let's remember what he did. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us. Circle the word redeem. Very important. He redeemed us. He bought us back out of our sin and out of our death sentence. He redeemed us from all lawlessness and to purify purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, part of what we see here in Titus is, Titus is, is a beautiful picture of, of what is being said here, is that you're not supposed to be pursuing all the bad works. You're supposed to be pursuing all the good works. And why? Because of his great grace. The, look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. And so, friends, if you're under the grace of God, as we see in Romans 6, Romans 8, Titus 2, this is the picture that we are not called to continue in sin. We're called to live in righteousness. There's yet another one. And there, there's actually many more than this, but look at 1 Peter chapter 1. So yet another author in the, the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, Set your hope fully, what does it say, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is talking about a future grace. 
um, a future grace that you can, you can look forward to. This is a grace that's going to be grace upon grace. You've been, you've been graced to be saved, but there's going to be an even greater grace. This is a future grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children, as opposed to disobedient children, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I mean, you used to not know. You didn't know him. You didn't know what all he did. And so, yeah, you were doing foolish stuff. You would just... You didn't understand the big picture, and there's so many of you that that's been part of your testimony, that you've just said, man, God came and got me out of my mess. He just came and revealed to me how, how wrong I was. He revealed to me how good his plan is, and, and he just rescued me out of that. And that's part of what is here. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy, underline it, in all your conduct. Yes, this is convicting. This is convicting to me. And I hope that it is convicting to you. Verse 16, and then here's the whole reason. Since it is written, this comes out of Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And the word holy means set apart, not like the rest. In a fallen world, you have much unholiness, the, the opposite of who God is. And he's saying, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's God's great plan, is to make you holy. And it's his great plan to declare you holy at your salvation, and then to help you learn the glories of his holiness as you walk in this life. And as you do that, you start to see how big his grace is and how big his cross is because you keep seeing your sin and you see it and you see it and you say, wow, he continues to forgive. He continues to have grace. Oh, the glory of his grace. And all of this comes back to Christ's victory. Okay, so fill this in. Notice that all sin at all times is a big deal to God. All sin at all times is a big deal to God. It's the sin of the unsaved and the saved. You say, well, God's really upset about the sin of those lost people that don't know Christ. I don't know. I read my Old Testament, and the thing that really got God riled up more than anything else wasn't the Phoenicians and wasn't the Assyrians and the others. The thing that got God riled up over and over and over again was the sins of Israel. Just read your Old Testament. And so he takes our sin very seriously. And, and it would be real easy to say, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse. Now, I'm not making fun of that. That's very true. But we love to sing about grace. We love to sing about he'll not let you fall. He'll, he'll you know, all of these things. But very often we, we kind of ignore his call to live the way he saved us to live. You see, among the young and among the old, doesn't matter whether you're a new Christian or whether you're a young person or whether you've been around for you know, a long time and, and you've walked with God for a long time. It's, it's not like you get special dispensations of sin. It's not like the young man gets special dispensations of sin. What about the powerful and the weak? You see, there's some who either because they're a Bible teacher or because they're very wealthy and maybe they give a lot or because they just have a powerful personality and everybody thinks they're so great. You see, it's, it could be tempting for someone that in some way is powerful to think that they have a special permission to sin. Wrong. That's, that's not the way that works. Or maybe some would say, well, I'm weak and I'm poor. And I don't have much. And, you know, I, you know I'm, okay, I'm okay. God God and I have an understanding. You know the number of times I've heard people say that? God and I just have an understanding as they're rationalizing sin. My friends, that's what we see in 1 John chapter 1, that they are self-deceived. They're, they're not understanding what God has said. So notice that all times, at all, uh, all sin at all times is a big deal to God. Notice the next one. 
that notice that God's grace through Jesus Christ not only saves us from the penalty of our sin, that's God's wrath, but it also breaks us from the bondage of our sin. That's Satan's power. And that's, you can put out there to the side, the power of the flesh. Both of those are broken, both of those are broken through the victory of Christ. That you don't have to go on in sin. You now have what it takes in Jesus Christ to be free from this bondage of sin. Um, now, John's going to unpack this, and this isn't the last sermon on this. We're going to talk about what does it mean not to continue to walk in sin, not to continue to walk in darkness. What, it me- what does it mean to walk in the light? What does it mean to not sin? What does it mean to walk in that? John deals with that over and over again. And so we're going to unpack that. By the time we're done, I think we're going to have a pretty healthy view of not only the way Christ views us, in our sin, but also what he has done. I believe that there's going to be great victory. I believe that there's going to be conviction of sin in our lives, and we're going to see that we can let it go by his grace and by his power, with his help, that we can live a holy life. Now, one day I went to a seminary class, and I confess, I don't even remember which one it was, but I remember when the segment that I'm about to share with you was shared with me. And I want you to know it went into my brain and it just solidified right then, right there. This really spoke to me. And so what I'm, what I'm sharing with you, uh, we need a little bit of help from Latin. And um, I, I think that this will be enlightening to you and I, and I pray that it's helpful to you. Um, notice out there to the right, Adam before the fall, everyone after the fall, this is in the parentheses out there to the right, the, re- the redeemed in this life and the redeemed after this life. So there's the time periods that we're going to, but the first one is called passe picare. Passe picare. What does that mean? It means it's possible to sin. It's possible to sin. That's what we see with Adam before the fall. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we see that the Lord comes to him and says, of all the garden you shall eat, but not this tree. And so go, enjoy all that is here, but do not eat this tree. And so here they were in innocence and in God's great protection. Here they are, not in sin. And it was possible for them to operate in that. But what, so, so it was possible um, to sin. Um, That was obviously a possibility because God told them not to do it. But then comes the fall. And after the fall, it becomes non posse, non pecare, which means not possible not to sin. It's a double negative, but that's okay. We're looking at Latin. It's not English. Notice here what it says. It's not possible for you not to sin. Another way, you're going to sin. You're going to sin because you have to. And the reason you're going to sin because you have to is because you have a fallen nature that hasn't been saved, that hasn't been redeemed. You don't have power over sin. And that is the picture of everyone after the fall. We are born into a sinful world, a world that has fallen into a curse, and we are prone. How do you know it? One of the ways that we say it in the life of our church, one of the great pictures of total depravity in our lives is this idea. You don't have to teach babies and small children to do the right thing, excuse me, to do the wrong thing. They automatically know how to do the wrong thing. They're learning how to do the wrong thing. And if you don't teach them to do the right thing, they will only do the wrong thing. I mean, they will self-destruct in that regard. And so this is a great picture of the fact that we have a nature that is not prone toward righteousness. We have a nature that is toward, prone toward unrighteousness, non posse, non pecare. But then we see this. For the redeemed, here's what happens. Non, or passe, non pecare means possible not to sin. And this is for the people who are saved in this life. We see in these passages that because of Christ, it is possible that we can have victory over sin. It is possible that we are going to see these great 
areas of bondage in our life that Jesus is going to work those out of our life as he works us toward righteousness and in righteousness. And more and more, our practice will match our position. Our position is justified in Christ. Our practice, our daily life, our walking is coming to match what he has done in saving us. This is called sanctification. This is called growing in righteousness. Now, I love the last one. I can't wait for the last one. Look at the last one. Non posse pecare. What does that mean? Not possible to sin. Can you just shout, Amen? Amen. Do you look forward to when it's not possible to sin? I do. I, I look forward to the day that it's just impossible for me to blow it. Because while he's changing me and he's growing me, and while sin does not have rulership and bondage over me, I still manage to mess it up. And yet he is saying, well, in me, if you stay in me, you don't have to mess it up. I have victory over this. The redeemed life is, is the life that you can live, but there's going to be a day when it's no longer possible to sin. Um, and I love that. Well, so fill this in. Praise be to God. If you are a true Christian, because of the power of Christ in you, no sin is master over you. It is passe non pecare. For you, you can have victory over all sin that you struggle with. And you know, when God keeps bringing it up, it's, this is just an opportunity for him to prove to you that you're saved. You say, what do you mean? Well, let's just let him work it out of your life. The thing that you think can't change and you begin to surrender it to him, you surrender your mortal body, your mortal members to his righteousness and he proves once again, you know me because I have set you free from that. And you begin to learn to live your life by faith instead of in your own strength. Faith in him, not faith in you. You see, if you could overcome your sin on your own, then you would become very independent from God. But when you start to see his love and his grace and what he has done for you, and you start to say, man, I want to honor you, God. I want to live for you. I want to I do this as you have called me to do, but I can't do it on my own. And he says, you're exactly right. Let me do it through you. That's what God wants. He wants you to depend upon him every waking hour, every waking moment. He wants you to see that your spiritual life is dependent upon him and his grace and his mercy and his power and that's what it means to really grow in the Christian life but if you've given up on battling sin and you've just said this is just the way I am you are missing out you you may be self-deceived and not know God at all that's what first John is pointing to but you certainly are missing out on the great glory of his grace and his blessings. God wants you to learn to trust in him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life up for me. That's the way that our sin is brought under the power of Christ. So this victory, this mastery that Christ has and not sin, fill this in, this, only, this deliverance only, come, only, 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 only comes by faith in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for your sins. That's the only way. You cannot muscle through it. You can't do it by sheer force. God will do that. And so the question becomes, have you received him? Have you really received him? In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 12 and 14, it says this, that to as many as those who received them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Have you received him? 
part of that picture is, have you surrendered to him? Have you surrendered to him? Fill that in. Him is missing there. Have you surrendered to him as Lord of your life? Because that's what it means to no longer be under the lordship of sin and Satan, but to be under the lordship of Christ. Amen? Let's stand together for prayer. Lord, it's my great prayer this morning that you would cause us to see through these passages, through this word that you desire for us to live lives that are victorious through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that you have designed for us not to go on living lives of sinfulness, not to go on excusing our sin, but to go on depending upon your presence and your power to live lives that are honoring to you. Lord, I pray this morning for those who have just felt the call to believe upon you. Lord, they have been sensing their need to surrender to you. I pray that this moment that they would say, Lord, I surrender. I am yours. No longer do I resist you, O God. I confess to you that I am a sinner in need of this grace that you have offered so abundantly. Lord, save me. Take me. Make me yours. Give me the victory that I cannot have on my own. Lord, I pray for that. I pray that there would be some this morning that just even right now that they are coming from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. And Lord, I pray for Christians today that have lived defeated in these things. And maybe it's been waiting upon this message to challenge them to just look and see that the victory is in Jesus. It's dependent daily upon Christ. Lord, I pray that those giants would fall in the things that we could never do, Lord, that you would do. So, Lord, I, I thank you that it is in Christ alone that we can have the victory and the joy. And, Lord, the, the great peace that only God can give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.